Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today we are joined by returning special guest, Alex Berman, powerhouse in the B2B SaaS and sales world. Alex is the founder of Omni.us, a game-changing tool that's revolutionizing automated B2B client acquisition. With a track record of building a seven-figure agency, exiting five software-as-a-service companies, and authoring a best-selling email book, cold email book, The Cold Email Manifesto, Alex's expertise is unparalleled. He's also the brains behind a YouTube channel with over 100,000 subscribers where he shares invaluable insights on sales, marketing, and entrepreneurship. Today, we'll dive deep into his journey, the secrets behind Omni.us, and his vision for the future of sales. So Alex, thank you so much for having coming back here again, my friend. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to do a follow-up. I feel like a few things have changed. I don't even know if ChatGPT had come out when we did our first interviews. For those that haven't listened to the first interview, you may want to go back and listen to that as well. I was actually looking over the notes and it was timeless advice. We'll add well to this, I'm sure. But for those that don't know you, maybe we can give a quick recap. How did you even get started in this? Do you come from a family of entrepreneurs and this, you were taught like from a young age, how to be a Jedi at this stuff, or was it, was just like a golden brick road laid out for you that made it so simple? I was actually from a family of entrepreneurs. My dad was, he invented colored latex gloves. And so during the, yeah, so that was the first business that they started. And then my older brothers and everyone had their own companies during SAS, during the nineties tech boom and all that. Okay. Um, So I always felt like I was going to start something. I don't know. Kind of pressure too, right? not really pressure, more so I just really looked up to them and wanted to become mm-hmm. an entrepreneur as well. So I went to college for marketing. And then after college, I didn't really know what I was going to do, but I knew I didn't want to live in this small town in Florida that I was in. So I wanted to move to New York City, knew nobody. And in order to meet them, I had to figure out ways to meet people that I didn't know. And the easiest way that I found was emailing them. I went to New York with no opportunities, no nothing, and just started sending cold emails every single day. I would go to the coffee shop, send emails. And after just a couple of weeks of that, I had interviews set up. I had jobs, offers and all that. And I ended up working for a funded SaaS startup, exactly what I wanted to do, what I thought I wanted to do. (laughs) It ended up being just making a whole bunch of cold calls, eight hours, nine hours a day. And I realized then that it's not enough to have your dream job on paper. You also need to have your dream lifestyle. And I realized making cold calls nonstop all day was not my dream lifestyle. Right. So I switched, got a job at a at an agency doing more enterprise sales where you know one sale was worth more than the entire year of sales we were doing at the other company. And from there, I did well enough. They made me director of marketing. And then instead of taking that promotion, I made them uh, my first client at our agency. And that's, that was that. Then we had X27. We had that seven-figure agency going. That's fantastic. Uh, cold emailing, fueling the whole thing. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And I'm feeling nostalgic because hearing you talk about how you wanted to get like a job and you're cold emailing. That's actually how I got started in online marketing too. I think I was 17 and I'd done this program. I got to travel and work around Canada called for nine months called Katimovic. And I wanted to go back out to the West Coast, British Columbia. But I was just like a kid. I think my parents gave me a thousand bucks. That was my inheritance. And I just had, the, I just threw my stuff on a bus and I hitchhiked across the country, but I didn't want to have Nothing. And this is like old school. I, I Maybe we're even like dial up days. It was that far back ago. And I just remember I found on like an online classifieds, all these like rooms for rent. And I called this lady and I rented a room in her house. Again, I'm 17. And then the same thing, like you said, I just went to the Chamber of Commerce website and I just scraped all the businesses emails 
And I had, a, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't go to university for marketing or nothing. I just had a three email campaign. And the first one was like a cover letter, my resume, why me? The second one had a PowerPoint presentation. The last one was like, time's running out. Like I'm going to hit the road, Jack. And I had interviews lined up for me when I got out there. So I, you told your story. I was like my brother from another mother. Can you? People don't realize when they, when you lose a job, you become the greatest entrepreneur of all time for about two weeks, right? You're <laughs> actually getting yourself out there. You've crafted the perfect offer. You're doing all this. And then as soon as you get the next job, you just forget what to do. Right. Yeah. All the jobs is a business with one product, your time and one customer, your boss, like ultimately, right? At the end of the day. Yeah. Can you speak to the difference between enterprise sales and maybe just B2B or even B2C? What is there a big difference? Or is it just price? the price tag is bigger? So the price tag is bigger for sure. When I was at the agency, we were selling massive enterprise deals. And even at X27, we were booking these meetings for other people. Um, and it was actually fairly straightforward. All you would do is craft an offer and email it to people. Same exact way that you were doing, that we would do with local businesses and restaurants. What I found is that the enterprise are actually easier to contact than a lot of these chiropractors or local businesses are. Because... These guys live in their email inbox. And as long as you can prove that you are relevant to them or that you're uh, worth meeting, then they're going to meet. Because a chiropractor might be busy with clients all week, but an executive at a Fortune 500 company, he's not busy. He's working maybe an hour or two a day and the rest of the time he's wasting time on Facebook. So if he can book a meeting with somebody where it seems like he's doing his job, he'll book that meeting. And then it's up to you to pitch correctly. Got it. So let's, can we help the listeners? I know you got a couple... I think one, I don't know if one you made up or not, but I know you made up one. It was the three C's. What is it? Compliment, case study, call to action. Is that only email? Does that work? LinkedIn, Twitter outreach. Is that just a universal formula or? It works even in, in events. I used to do a meetup in New York city called geeks and suits. And it was in the advertising industry. And that's how I would introduce myself every time I'd, you know, come up, I'd be like, Oh, nice shirt. Or something like, hey, really love <laughs> nice this outfit. eyeballs you got something. there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Hey, I do web development for people like Power Rangers and uh, HMH and Tyson Chicken. What do you do? Same exact sort of thing. Start with the compliment, butter them up a little bit, then give a case study which shows not just your offer, but why you can do your offer. So, hey, we do web design for people like this, or hey, we do Facebook ads for companies like this, and then call to action whatever the ask is. So an email, it does come down to a compliment. Hey, found your website, really big fan of your company. Love all the growth you've done this year. I generate leads for Fortune 500 companies. In the last six months, I've booked meetings with Tesla, McKinsey, Moody's, and a ton more. And I'd love to do the same for you. And then call to action. Mind if I send over a few times for a quick call? So then what happens on the call? They're like, hey, can I give you money? Is that basically how it goes? Is it just that simple? A cold email call is very different from an inbound agency call. Like a lot of people, they this is another place they mess up. It's good you brought this up because inbound, the big difference is people will come to your agency with a project in mind. Maybe they've researched you, maybe they haven't, but they at least have a project in mind. If you're selling websites, if somebody comes inbound, yeah. you know, they probably want a website. website if you're going right. outbound, if you're going outbound, you have to drive the entire project, meaning you have to point out the problems with their website and show you and show them what you can do differently and how you can improve the business. And most agencies, when they start booking a lot of meetings with cold email, like they're doing cold email manifesto, they're following the YouTube channel, all that, they make that mistake. And they think that an inbound meeting is the same as a cold meeting. But 
you are the driver on your cold email-based calls. You have to prove yourself. You have to speak in case studies, meaning every time a client asks a question, so yes. like, hey, hey, why are you qualified to do this? I can't just say, I've been doing it for 20 years. I have to say something like, I'm qualified to yes. do this because I've worked with five of your competitors already. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Five of your competitors already. Three of them are succeeding. The other two are about to succeed with this. And you're next. Yeah. Like you have to really rehearse every single thing that you're saying, especially in the first 10, 15 minutes of these cold call meetings, cold email meetings. I love this. I love this. So it sounds like now, is it a one call close for enterprise level clients? For enterprise? No, it really depends. If they are recommended to you, you can close them if you have a solid offer in one call. If it's a big enterprise, like the last one I did was so TV land. We, we got this crazy deal with uh, TV land for one of our clients. And in order to get them, it was one of these agencies that had worked with Netflix in the past on one of their social media campaigns. So we emailed a bunch of TV guys. We're like, hey, we did Netflix. You want to meet with us? Something like yeah. that. And we <laughs> booked a meeting and we booked a, a meeting and it was with the initial guy. And so after that initial screening, then we got a uh, presentation. It was 20 people in the room. Wow. And we had to actually put together a PowerPoint presentation, do the actual screening and everything. And at that point, then we got sign off from the decision makers, but sign off doesn't mean a signed piece of paper. Yeah. Then after sign off just means they have permission to now do the deal with us. So right. then we actually still had to do the contract phase, go back and forth with legal, do a bunch of calls. Our lawyers had to get on the phone with their lawyers type of thing. And then there you go. There's the contract and that's that. So the enterprise level deals are a lot less simple than just shaking somebody's hand and getting $200 off of uh, Stripe from them, but they are straightforward. It's not like it's, it's not like we didn't know what to do, right? Like we met with the first guy and then he was like, okay, now we got to do a presentation. So we did the presentation. Then he's okay. Now we got to do a contract. Then we did the contract. It's not like you're in unmapped seas here when you're doing enterprise sales. Now, how do you present? How do you present to win? How do you present to win? So I used to think you needed to do all of this design and all this craziness, but I met this dude, Tim, who's this enterprise level sales consultant. And the reason why I met with him is because when we were selling websites, it was this major university, like maybe top 20 university. And he was the tech consultant for this university, meaning he was the guy whose entire job it was to buy from vendors. And he took me through the entire process uh, of the sale because first I sold him and then he did the presentation to the university president. And I watched him write this uh, presentation in about five minutes, just using the standard uh, PowerPoint template, no fancy things at all. I think it was like seven slides long. Uh, and it was just like um, the problem. Uh, here's the solution. Here's who these guys are. And here's the timeline budget. Let's go. I actually don't even remember if the budget was there. It might have even it might have not even had the budget on the slide. So now <laughs> and this that was all it took. And then since well, since I saw him do that, that's how I, I do all my presentations the same exact way. I just go through like very quick, barely put anything in the PowerPoint and then go through it. Because what I realized is these guys want to know that you have it handled. If you put too much show and too much effect and uh, crazy designs into the PowerPoint presentation, then they're going to go and spread it around to their team and get all the feedback and everything. But if the PowerPoint presentation only works as an in-person presentation, now they can't share it with anybody. They just have to approve the project. Ah, that's like a golden nugget right there. The presentation has to only make sense to the people in the room because you're there to explain it. Right. Yep. Now, does that work against you? Because I know some people, their ego, and this almost speaks to me. I'm going to be speaking with the president of Sandler Selling System Canada. And it makes me, I don't know if Sandler, but it almost sounds like their sales process to a certain extent where 
for them, it's all about qual like it's two thirds qualifying and like hot girl. I don't know if this is me, if you're the client for me. And then when all the details, then you almost, I think it's like your bent, right? Like budget, authority, need, timeline. And once they answer all that stuff, their budget, their need, they have the authority, the timeline, then you just have this five slide thing. Okay. Here's your problem. Here's what the ideal solution would look like. Here's how our solution is that ideal solution. And here's what to do next. And it's just, it's like a slow pitch at that point. Is that? Yeah, exactly right. If they're qualified, they have budget. Like you said, they have budget. They have the authority to buy. They have a need for it. And they're ready to move forward. Any other words you say hurt you. The less you can say, the better in that scenario. Got it. Got it. So what would you recommend someone that's starting up and maybe struggling? They've got a business. Now, I guess I should maybe qualify this, whether it's an enterprise level do you think everyone should just go enterprise or do you think that, yeah, let me ask that question. Do you think that more people should go enterprise that don't? I think the the progression of your business is linear and the agency is just a stepping stone. Meaning you can start as a freelancer, then maybe move into agency, but you need to move into uh, courses or consulting or something that doesn't require trading your time as quick as possible. Right. And then what I've been doing is using that money to build uh, software as a service projects. For instance, our la our last one, I was running the lead generation agency, X27. Then I made a cold email course called Cold Email University. Yep. Then I used the 20, 30K from that one to build a Omni cold email tool. And now that's what, what we're pitching. I also did this with a, a LinkedIn app. We had our LinkedIn course, LinkedIn X, and then we used that to build Taplio, which grew to 50, 60,000 MRR. And then we were able to sell that for it was over $2 million, Taplio and TweetHunter together. That's so that's been the, yeah. So that's been the most straightforward path, but without the agency step, it's very hard to figure out the skills that you can pitch via courses. And I used to be, I used to be all in on the, just do agencies as a lifestyle, but man, eventually those meetings, those constant meetings, the clients, the getting back and forth with you all day, even dealing with the team internally, that gets to you, especially when you realize you can make the same amount of profit by selling like two courses as you can <laughs> by dealing with an agency client. And, and it's instead of spending six months doing that, you can do that in about 10 minutes or less. Sending right. email to your life. Yeah. That, that this, maybe I'll talk, I don't know if Naval, I'm a huge fan of Naval Ravikant and he talks about forms of uh, leverage and that previously all wealth was made with permission-based leverage, which was capital and teams, capital and people. So you needed money Money could expedite things. You could buy a lot of things, but typically you don't have it. So you need permission from the bank or financiers or something like that. And you have to answer to them. And then the other form of leverage was people. And either you had to get their permission to come work for you, either voluntarily or for monetary compensation. And even if it was slave labor, you still needed enforcers. So at some level, you needed permission from someone to make the people angle happen. But now we're in a new area where there's media and code. And media is like we said, right before we hit record, you've got YouTube videos. I have debt podcasts that I've recorded in 2015 and I still get downloads from those. And that's our, like that hour is so highly leveraged and same thing with code, the cost of replication. So it almost sounds like what you're saying by doing the agency, even if someone's not in the agency space, you have to really identify what problem you solve first and learn how to solve it. And then you can either do a done for you at a high ticket price, a done with you, which is your course with some maybe coaching or just a do-it-yourself, here's the course. Is that a fair approximation? Yeah, and it just comes down to what you're passionate about. So for instance, for me, I don't like doing done 
with use or done for use because I don't like studying other people's businesses. Frankly, if I'm thinking about their business, I'm not building my own business. So mm-hmm. what I found works really well are the broadca- broadcast kind of courses where you just record, hey, he's got to send a cold email, he's got to do this, blah, blah, blah. You can buy this for $249. There's no private community. There's no nothing like that. And right. that's worked really well. The latest one we did was one called Start Your SaaS, which I'm starting a new software as a service business. I thought we needed like 20K to develop it. I think we're going to be able to develop it for 3K. But I just tweeted I just tweeted something out. I was like, hey, my last SaaS sold for 2 million. Want to watch me do it again and take a new SaaS to 20K? Everything, no holds barred. Grab this below. And it was $99. And then people started buying it. And then after 20 people bought, I raised it to 199. And now we've sold $23,000 of this thing. And it's just access to a Slack channel. Right. Just, hey, here's a Slack channel every day or every couple of days or whenever I, I have an update, I come in and I tell them what's going on with the SaaS. Mm. Uh, and that's it. And that's the ideal scenario because uh, for someone like me, that's the ideal scenario because not only am I getting money up front to fund the SaaS, but I'm also getting accountability. Now I can't just F off with the money, right? I have to get on the Slack and, right. and tell people what's going on in my business, right. which fixed a major problem for me, which is, when you work for somebody else, you have to report to them yeah, every yeah, week. Yeah. <laughs> but when you're an entrepreneur, you're out here like, I'm on Miami Beach right now. You, you could just go somewhere and never never work. But if people are paying you to watch you do this thing, now you have to do it. Yeah. Um, and it's validation of the business because the software that I'm building is actually a business that'll help you start your SaaS. So now I know people are willing to pay at least to learn how to start a SaaS, if not for this exact solution. That's some what you really tips. want to figure out. What are but, some of the tips for someone that wants to start a SaaS? Let's talk about that. Because you said it was going to be 20K and now you're doing it for 3K. That's mm-hmm. a, a huge gap. So what gives? I realize everything's made up, bro. I realize that agile development is a scam, first of all. So I've spent over 250000 on software development across those uh, five SaaSs that were acquired in the past. And what I realized is if you let developers do whatever they want, they're just going to bill you like crazy. Like one of our SaaSes was venture funded and we were spending 13,000 a month on developers for a a company that wasn't even making any money at all. Mm -hmm. And when you look at what they were able to build for 13,000 a month versus what a freelancer could build for $8,000 one time, it's the same amount of things. And so when I realized that all the prices were made up, it allowed me to get a lot more leverage in the negotiation. Can you speak to that? What do you mean all the prices are made up? All the prices are made up, meaning you could have, let's say you want to build a SaaS. Like mine is a, a one feature SaaS, basically. It creates these little HTML embeds that you can put onto any website. And then you have this feature. Let's say that's the SaaS. I asked a bunch of developers, like maybe... I talked to at least 100 developers via Upwork and other platforms. And I got prices that were all over the place. Like one guy was like, it's impossible, unable to do it. Another guy was like, oh, it's $25,000. One guy was like, oh, it's $1,000 to build. And then one guy got back and said, Alex, I'm a huge fan of your stuff. I've followed everything in the world. I love this SaaS. I can do this for $3,000 and a $500 bonus if I succeed. And so I went for passion, but I realized that I I got prices all across the board. And that's what I mean by it's made up. What's the difference between the $25,000 guy and the $1,000 guy? The $25,000 guy most likely will take $24,000 in profit and just hire the $1,000 guy to do it anyway. Might as well just go with the the lower ones. Got it. So anything to look out for? I know a lot of people you you hit. I know a guy that was trying to get a platform up and going, and it was just a money pit. Is there any tips on that? 
Yeah, SaaS is a, it is a disaster. The best thing that you can do is pre-sale up front like we are with Start Your SaaS. Like I have 20K now that's new money. If it was 20K out of my savings that were, that were going to have to be spent on this, I would be so anxious. But right. if I make 20K with the pre-sales, now it's, now I don't care. It's play money. So right. that's one. Two, you have to really reduce your scope down and you're, and it's not clear unless a little bit about coding, what is high scope. So for instance, in mine, it was the HTML embed thing, right? Where you just take uh, a little HTML snippet, you put it in your click funnels or in your lead pages, and then it shows you a little widget. The original idea was a full-on website builder, click funnels and full-on website builder could be hundred K. But when you're writing that out in your spec doc, it was more like, Hey, here's all the widgets, blah, 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 plus full website builders. It was just three words. And those three words were $90,000 on to the $3,000 budget. So it's worth noting there. GPT actually helps a lot with this. If you put your prompt into GPT-4, you can say, hey, acting as a technical co-founder, how would you build this SaaS for under $5,000? It will map some stuff out. And then you can say, hey, are there any problems or any things in here that would account for more than 90% of the budget? And it would tell you what it is. And you can talk back and forth. GPT has actually been super helpful when it came to hiring these devs as well, because I don't understand coding. I didn't understand tech stacks. I don't understand any of this stuff, but GPT is able to recommend where our hosting should be, what tech stack it should be in. And then also I can feed in the nonsense that the developers say, because they speak in a whole nother language and have it translated into uh, something that I can understand. (laughs) I don't know if I'd be able to do this without AI. Mm, Yeah, I agree. A lot of people are afraid of AI. And I, to me, I think it's just like a tool, like We had bookkeepers and accountants before, and then calculators came out and it made the productive accountants more productive and the non-productive ones lost their excuse for why it took them a day to do two plus two equals four. I think it's almost the same thing. Like you're saying, it's shortening the learning curve. And you talked about pre-selling. I am such a fan of pre-selling and it's a painful lesson I've had to learn more than once. You might be able to empathize. And I always like to think of Elon Musk, how he made a minimum viable product and then he went and made $300 million selling a car. He had no team to build and no factory to make $300 million. I just want to say that again, $300 million with no team and no factory. Yeah. Yeah. So now you talk about pre-sales. This is all cold email. No, this has been leveraging the audience and the email list. So right. what I found is the more trust that an audience has in you, the less you have to say. Similar to what we said with the presentation, right? You get into the presentation, you've already been talking to them for a while, so you can have a much smaller presentation. Similar with building your, your course or selling, you're doing your pre-sales for your SaaS, whatever. The more trust they have, the less you can say. No, I just sent out that one tweet and we sold 30 or 40 of them off the tweet. And then I started sending emails to the list. I started talking about it on the YouTube channel, things like that. Yeah. Um, don't discount having an audience and don't discount using every single thing at your disposal to win. So for me, as somebody who's been making content for the last seven, eight years, who has 100,000 subs, to try to build a business completely off of cold email from the very beginning would be stupid, right? right? You have to leverage everything that you have. And then, yeah, eventually we'll add cold email to it as it's a little more ready to grow. Cold email is very similar to cold traffic, meaning if you don't have your offer lined in. If you don't have your offer completely locked in and ready to go, you'll waste a whole bunch of time that you won't waste if you talk to audiences that trust you. Because Mm -hmm. for instance, I can talk to an audience that trusts me and I can say, hey, why didn't you buy this? And then they'll tell me why they didn't buy it and I can make improvements. But if you go to a cold person and they don't buy and you're like, hey, why didn't you buy this? They'll tell you unsubscribe or F off. Right. Yeah. (laughs) 
So right. use the warm audience's trust in order to get the product to a point where then you can leverage cold. And then once it's ready, yeah, send cold emails, run ads to it, uh, do everything that you can to get the word out. But don't do that before the product is ready. The good thing okay. about having an audience is you can make money before the product is ready. Can you speak to that a little bit? In today's day and age, a lot of people, because of COVID, were forced online and maybe they were great. I'll just shut up. Just leave it at that. Can you speak to building and nurturing an audience, especially once you start getting to scale? It might be easy when you've got 10, 20 people, but how do you 100,000 subscribers? That's a lot of birthday cards. Yeah. <laughs> It's a, lot, it's a lot of birthday cards. I found it's it's the same with 10 to 20 people. If you show your YouTube video to 10 people and all of them hate it, 100 people are not going to love the video. That that I think I used to think that, oh, if I just got more eyeballs on this thing, maybe it'll get better. And it's like art that nobody's seeing. But that was the biggest realization that I had. Bro. <laughs> if, you, if you show it to your mom and she hates it, adding 100 more people to look at it is going to be 100 more people that hate it. It's not the, the thing needs to actually be better. So that's what I've realized with the YouTube channel. I just feel like it's me talking to a camera. And as long as I speak the truth, and as long as I speak to ideas that are somewhat relevant to people, then they'll continue to watch. And we have pretty easy problems to solve, right? Anything related to wealth, honestly, people like. So as long as I'm talking about how to generate leads for your clients, or even whatever we talked about on this uh, podcast, like stories from the field, things like that, then we're good to go. Because right. my audience is, it's either young people who've never done it or older people who've never done it. Both of those guys need the war stories and they need tactics so that they feel like they have a, a box of things like, oh, if I ever need to start a business, I'll just watch Alex's channel and do it. So I'm going to subscribe. And then there's the people that are actively in the field who need the more in-depth tutorials and need to actually implement. You make a lot more money off the, the first two types of people, but the right. third type of people are also as well. Newbies. That was a real eye-opener for me when I was in martial arts. I realized at a tournament once that the white belt division was always the biggest division at all the martial arts. And I just, it was not even close. Like it was 80-20, where 80% of the people competing were all white belts. And you'd have, you'd be lucky if you had two black belts to show down. And it's like, they just fight each other five times to see who the winner was. Because there wasn't like a roster of black belts to go at it. So helping new people, I think, establish the fundamentals, get good is definitely a big part. Now, do you... And the audience is and the audience is a lot wider too. Like we could sit here on this podcast and I could tell you all about DMARC and DKIM and how which uh, cold email sending platform you should use. Is it Microsoft 365 or is it Google Workspace? And how do you configure that? Like we could go into unbelievable weeds, but the amount of people that would find that interesting versus a story about pitching a, a major Fortune 500, the difference in audience is so much wider. That's a wider audience. And then if it was something else, like maybe it was an embarrassing story from high school, the audience would get even wider on top of that. Right. So it just depends on how many people find your story interesting. Yeah. Um, and then it's a trade-off. Like we could talk about DKIM and the setup, everything that I just talked about, but will those people necessarily pay me more than the ones that are hyped up about entrepreneurship? In my experience, no, they won't. There is a lot like, yes, if we talk about like high school embarrassments, those audiences, that is possibly, that's meaningless. Like you're not going to monetize those. If you talk about hardcore business tactics, super advanced black belt level stuff, that is also monetizable. But if you find that hybrid where you talk about mostly newbie stuff with that business edge, then you can monetize that stuff because all of those guys want to become advanced and they'll pay for it. And I, I think there's also to, to, first off, you make me feel bad, Alex. I was about to ask some deep in the weeds questions and you're like, don't ask those because- No, we will. <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm just busting your balls, man. It's all good. But I also think there's might be even a, a deeper reason of what you're saying is that 
like I learned a martial art, like I did jujitsu and I trained with Hicks and Gracie at his school in uh, Tokyo for a couple of years before opening up my own. And one of the things like wow. I pick another Gracie, Hodger Gracie, he won a bunch of world championships. And what I think made him so sensational was everybody knew what he was going to do. He was going to take you down. He was going to get you a mount. And he was going to gee choke you from top mount. And it didn't matter who it was. He would take you down, get to mount and gee choke you. And these are things that you get taught in your first two months of training. And so when you talk about the newbie stuff, I think there's like virtue is doing, I heard this somewhere that virtue is doing the common uncommonly well. And a lot of times, at least for me, when I help a lot of people, even if they seem advanced, when you really get into it with them, they're missing a fundamental. And that might even be part of why when you talk about the newbie stuff, you're talking about the fundamentals and those fundamentals are fundamental. Like again, to go to jujitsu, Eddie Bravo's got all these, like the electric chair and the rubber guard, but that shit just doesn't work on advanced people. It only works on the, the unaware. It only works on the people that don't know. I trained with a uh, UFC middleweight champ, Carlos Newton, and he was talking about how everyone's shy. Like the other guy's shy and, and, the, and the most equal, no fight is a fair fight because if they were, they'd be the most boring fights ever because nothing would happen. Like it would be so close. It would be so fair. So what you want to see is you want to see someone who completely outskills the other person, just slap and dummy the guy around. That's the most entertaining thing, right? It's just see someone have the snot beat out of them. And that means it's not a fair fight. One guy was clearly better, right? And so this is this kind of misconception. Like people may think, but when rubber hits the road, Fair fights are really boring to watch and you want to have an unequal thing, but it all comes back down to fundamentals to bring that full circle. But I, I digress. I did want to ask Alex in the world of AI and all this, what is happening? Is email going away? Can we talk about that a little bit? It's becoming, it's becoming a lot harder to spam for sure. There's a lot of people in the cold email space. Now the biggest trend is using these tools to send tens of thousands of emails a day which used to be the old trend. The, my, my content was a reaction to the old spammers. And I was like, why are you, spending, why are you sending 10,000 emails a day? If you just send one good email a day, you'll do better than those 10,000 spam emails. Right. And I've proven it time and time again. When we first started our agency, I only used to send 40 emails a week. And that was enough to book $600,000 in business in the first couple months. And so now people think it's changed. They think, they, they think that personalized approach has gone away. And so they're spamming and spamming harder and harder. And AI is attacking that. An AI can figure out if your email is spam and and it'll figure out random variables that they didn't even used to be able to track. In the past, they used to just block your email address. Now I've seen coaching students and other people where it's blocked their name. So let's say your name is Liam Hemsworth. Any email that's got the word Hemsworth in it now has a 90% chance of going to spam. And so we've started spin taxing their name if they do want to spam. They'll go LH or Liam <laughs> H or L Hemsworth just to try to get around that kind of stuff. Really? But they'll spam block things like the, the area code of the phone number in your signature or the, the redirect of the domain. It used to be like, let's say you were sending from a, a masked domain. Let's say you're sending from like googleagency.com and then redirecting that to google.com, which is your main business. Now the AI will actually click the link in your, in your name, go to that and say, oh, all of these 10 domains are actually just redirecting to google.com. Uh, so we'll just mark all of them as spam. And now you can't re-roll re as easily. And so you have to change providers. Like I did talk about before, you have to move from Google. You have to send some emails from Google Workspace and some from Microsoft 365 and some from your custom SMTP server that you set up. If you want to spam, it's hard. 
because everyone's trying to take you down. But if you send personalized, customized cold emails and cold pitches and cold DMs and all this sort of stuff, of course it always works because people can tell reality from fiction. People can spot templates. And what I've found, and this is a, a new finding, is people can also spot AI. We didn't know that until AI existed. But you can go out there and you can write the best cold email script in the world. And this is what I found too. Okay, I can go out there and write the best email in the world and I can send it and it'll do well, even right now. Then I can take that email and put it into AI and say, make this better. It can change even like one or two words and I'll send that email and it won't perform as well. So people sense anything that is inauthentic. So the more that you can be human, the better. The more that you can be, the more that you can tell jokes that are a little off color or go off the book or pull random references that aren't related to anything online that you intuit. Uh, the more that you can do this kind of stuff, the better you're going to be. Oh. I love that. So what you're really saying is that you have to connect human to human and that's not going away and that you can't really automate. All a company is is a group of people that solve a problem for another group of people and they do it via product or service. And what you're saying is you can't replace those people with robots. You can automate and get right. leverage certain ways, but you still have to have a human show up. That all things considered equal, people want to do business with their friends. All things not so equal, people still prefer to do business with their friends. So show up and be a friend. Don't be some weird automaton. automaton. Is that, yeah? Yeah. Who's the top business people in the world are people like Alex Ramosi. Are, is the best is the best business advice in an Alex Ramosi video or is it in those boring videos from maybe Harvard Business School? Probably better information is coming out of Harvard than is coming out of Alex Ramosi, but whose channel is doing better? And right. it's because people don't want to watch the boring professor that's reading off of a slide at Harvard, even if he had been Fortune 500 CEO and is one million times more qualified. Right. People need that energy and they need something that an AI can't replicate. And if I could put it into words, maybe they'd start to replicate it. So I don't even want to put it into words. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so cold email is not going away. Personalization, human to human is in. How do you personalize that though? How do you scale? Is it less about scale then? Is it maybe trying to tackle a bigger problem so you don't have to get a hundred, you know what I'm saying? There's a bit of a seesaw there where depending on your price point, if you want to make a million dollars, you need a thousand people to give you a thousand bucks or you need 5,000 people to give you $200 or 200 people to give you $5,000. And if you're unable to send those messages out and even just to get it dialed in, if you're going to get shut down testing and dialing in your offer, any words about that testing and getting an offer dialed in and at the same time being able to scale. Sure, you need to get better at uh, the feedback loop. So one reason why I really loved cold email in the beginning was if you send a cold email and it sucks, somebody would get back with unsubscribe or they would get back with this is terrible, this is trash. That's gone away in the age of spamming. If your email is bad, people will just delete it. But the feedback loops are still there, meaning, if you want to, let's say, build a business that sells to chiropractors, you could spend six months running ads and doing all this bullshit to try to figure out how to reach chiropractors, you or you can buy a ticket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or you can no, or you can buy a ticket to a chiropractor conference and you can talk face to face with 300 chiropractors by the end of two days and you'll have your pitch down. And then when it goes time, when it becomes time to send your emails, you'll actually know what chiropractors need. I, you, you, that really twists the knife. I, I always say people need to start face-to-face -face, kneecap to kneecap now because of painful lessons I learned where you spend just stupid and embarrassing amounts of money driving clicks to a website and you're stuck looking at Google analytics and heat maps and recordings and figure out why they did or didn't click on this, that button. When if you just got on the phone and talked to someone 
in 10 minutes, you would have saved yourself a week of staring at in these maps. That This has been a great call with tons of really good, actionable advice. I love the whole concept, too, of going to a conference of 300 to get that scale. So can you talk a little bit about scaling up then? So you talked about dialing in the offer. How do you scale, scale personalization in an era of spam? How do you do that? How do you make personalized outreach to so many people? You need a big win that gets people to respond to your email. And that's how you win in a personalized space. So when we first started pitching the agency, I'd worked with an agency called Dom and Tom, which I marketed to make sure that everybody in the world that was in the agency space had seen that logo at some point, right? Because I'm a good marketer. So I took that logo of our client and I put it on the top of all of the uh, directories. We're buying the sponsorships. We're doing all this. And luckily that worked for them to acquire clients, right? If you're on the top of directories, you're going to get McDonald's. You're going to get Alaska Airlines. You're going to get a bunch of these enterprise clients. So then after three months of work with this client, I now had work with a client that is a celebrity in the industry and who I've gotten massive results for. And so in my email, I just had to email people that were in the industry and say, hey, I was the mastermind behind these guys and I got them these clients. And then those emails got responded to. So yeah. instead of thinking about how to create the ultimate offer, try to try to create the ultimate case study. Because mm, even if I just sent that case study to a thousand people without hesitation, even with no personalization or anything, a large percentage of people would get back. That is like the soundbite of this interview right now. Don't craft the ultimate offer, craft the ultimate case study. I think that is so, that is just a really powerful writer downer for everyone here. It's not about, so it's not about trying to get a good open rate for a nurture email or a good click-through rate. It's, it sounds like those are just symptoms of something deeper. When something works, it works really well. We run a, me and my wife run a family channel. And she was saying yesterday, I think we have like 60K subs on Instagram, something like that. And she was saying yesterday that some of our content was going down because we were posting it from a different location. Like here's more in the weeds content. We're in Miami. Let's say we post a video where we're in Orlando and tag Orlando from Miami. She was saying the views were worse doing that. And then we posted a video doing that exact thing. But because the video was so good, it got 150,000 views in three days. And so if your content is good, all of the optimizations and all the little rules, like you're saying, go after open rate, uh, A-B test the buttons on a website. None of that matters if your core is so solid. I love that. 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 That is just speaks. So can we talk a little bit? I know we're getting close to the end of your time. You're probably getting antsy to get out to the beach. Can we speak a little bit to <laughs> skills and habits? What do you think? are the most important skills and habits to have as an entrepreneur to be consistent sure. and yeah, just leave it at that. One thing that's worked really well for me, and I wrote this in uh, Digital Nomad Manifesto, which was my other book. It's the concept of prime tasks. Uh, a prime task is something where your offer gets out to at least 10 people. So if you do one prime task a day, you'll be ahead of 90 to 99% of entrepreneurs. Meaning if you can do something today that gets your offer in front of 10 people, and it's not improving the buttons on your website, it's not designing anything, it's not working on your product. It could be something like sending a tweet that gets at least 10 likes or emailing your email list of at least 10 people. It's something that's going to get your product or your pitch in front of these people, sending 10 cold emails, just at a base level. The second level of prime task is make sure that those 10 people actually see it. So instead of sending 10 cold emails, you probably have to send 100 cold emails or 1,000 cold emails. So 10 actually open it. Right. But if you just do one prime task a day, you'll succeed in the long term because you're doing what most people don't, which is telling people about your business.
Right. Yeah. Prospecting. I always say you have to think of your business as a black box where people come in on one end and they're crying and in pain and they leave on the other side, smiling and happy. If you think of the dentist office, they come in crying and in pain, black box, they get fixed up, they leave with a beautiful smile on the back end. And then your job as an entrepreneur is to take that black box and save everybody that's in pain that you can access. I, I forget who it was, but someone had said that most entrepreneurs are like railway on railmen that just want to keep laying track where I just want to lay a good segment of track and keep it busy with trains all day. And that's even like something, I don't know if other people caught it, but you talked about a one feature SaaS business. Like that's just, for some people, I think that's so counterintuitive. It's only going to have one feature. Yeah, it's one, look at Flappy Bird. It was a one button game. You just click the button. Well, you can compare, yeah, you can compare two big businesses, Dropbox and HubSpot. Now, you might think HubSpot has all of these crazy features. It's got to be the bigger business, right? Dropbox just lets you send files. That's one feature. Dropbox is bigger than HubSpot. Mm. So you can build gigantic businesses off of one feature if you just make sure that feature is valuable enough. Solve one problem really well. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. Yeah. So Even prime like task. With Tesla, they sell. They used to sell one car. They built most of their equity off of a single car. Now they yep. sell three or four cars. That's it. Yeah. 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 The product line is not as big as you thought, which I think is really powerful. I think it's really powerful. So what else? So prime task, any other habits? So prime task, get your offer out there. And I think this speaks to uh, a buddy of mine told me that one of his favorite books was called oversubscribed. This was the book, but the whole concept of the book was don't do anything until you're oversubscribed. Don't build the product until you've got 20 orders type thing. Don't stop testing your marketing until you've got a waiting list of customers. Like you just, you need everything you do. You need to make sure that you're oversubscribed. Essentially, it's almost like the 10 X concept. Like you just need to make sure that at every step of the way you, the demand is so much look at Apple before they launched, people are lining up outside the door. Right. So I think that's a really, and that's almost what you're speaking to. And the prime task is almost the same thing. If a lot of people are like, oh, I've got all the clients I need. Oh, if I had 20 more customers with money out, would you find a way to take care of them? Of course you would. So are there other skills yeah. and habits? Yeah, and there, there are levels to it too. So for instance, you said 20 clients. Some people think in terms of 20, is 20 sales oversubscribed or is 200 sales oversubscribed or is it 2 million, right? If 200 people signed up to buy the next iPhone, Tim Cook would be out of a job. Right, <laughs> he he right. would you know, kill himself. <laughs> you got to think about the levels of, you got to think about the levels of business that you're playing at. And this is one thing that I could get better at as well. Like, why am I only selling 200 copies of Start Your SaaS? Yeah, it made us 20K or whatever, but why am I not saying I'd fail if we didn't sell 2,000 or 20,000 or 30,000 copies like some of these major businesses are doing? Right. Um, so that's the other thing is think about where those thoughts are holding you back in two areas, both in pricing and then in, in reach. So where am I aiming way too low in reach? Like, why am I trying to go for three sales? I used to only go for three sales to validate a product. Now it's 200. Yeah. But it should be 2000 And then the same on, on pricing. For, for our SaaS, most people, most indie makers try to price their software projects at $9 a month. Yeah, yeah. Um, but our most successful one so far with the acquisition and everything started at $49 a month and then went all the way up to 99 ClickFunnels is another software that I've been paying for every single month for two years now. It's $249 a month. Yeah. So you got to think about this kind of stuff. As it goes up, HubSpot, I'm a... I'm, uh, I'm yep. paying HubSpot, I think, $1,200 a month or maybe even $2,000 a month for access to their software. Think about the levels to the game. And most of this can be won from the idea phase. I have one other part of advice on that, but most of this can be won from the idea phase. You're either playing something that has very limited reach or something that's priced so low that you could never win. 
and think about, hey, if I got a thousand customers tomorrow, would my business even survive? One. And then two, how could I get a thousand customers tomorrow? Because if mm. your business would succeed wildly beyond your wildest dreams, nothing would break, then you're doing a disservice to everyone in your life by not getting those thousand customers. Mm. Mm. I heard that similar advice. It was told to me as the rule of 10,000. How would I get 10,000 leads? How would I handle 10,000 leads? How would I onboard 10,000 customers? How would I handle 10,000 refunds? Because the all concept of that is if you're baking five pies, you need different infrastructure than if you're going to bake 10,000 pies. And if you begin yeah, with the end of mind, think, yeah. Right. I used to think all this stuff was stupid. I was like, because I used to be on the other side. I'm like, why would I try to build for scale? What if it falls apart? Won't that all be wasted? Shouldn't I just try to drive people into the business? Some stuff, once you've done this a few times, things are going to work. I, it makes more sense to build this thing for scale and then promote it to the amount of people that I want to build it for rather than not build it for scale, still promote it to the amount of people. Cause I can only promote it to some certain level. I have a hundred thousand YouTube subscribers, like you said, and then have it fall apart. So right. now right. It, at that level, it becomes more about how do I create a good product and then pitch people to it. But this right. is stuff that is a waste of time for new entrepreneurs, right? A new entrepreneur just needs to go out there and make money. But right. when you're trying to build for massive scale, you actually need to do all this stuff that seems like waste of time uh, when you are just starting out. This is great. Alex, I know I know we're coming up on the hour. I want to be respectful of your time. I have more things I want to ask you, but is there anything I haven't asked you that I should have asked you? One second. Oh, the, the third piece of advice was on your business idea. Like everyone's out there trying to come up with new concepts, but the best idea is the idea that you had last week that you gave up on. Ooh, I like that. I like that. Inch wide, mile deep. I love that. I love that. Alex, this has been great. I got a couple of pages of notes here. I know people listening to this may want to go back and listen to it again and again, perhaps make sure they get all the goods. If people want to find out more, where should they go? How do they get in touch with you? Going over to youtube.com slash Alex Berman, ton of free content on there. And you'll be able to go into the rabbit hole that way. You'll figure out everything from there. Yeah. Okay. So go check them out on YouTube, Alex Berman, A-L-E-X-B-E-R. M-A-N. Alex, thank you so much for coming, knowing you have your own following, your own staff, your own businesses, your own all your own stuff going on. Thank you for coming and sharing with my audience and, my, and me so we can all do a little bit better. Appreciate you, man. Sure. Thanks, Daryl. Thanks for having me.